Personal Memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant Chapter 30 The Campaign Against Vicksburg Employing the Freedmen Occupation of Holly Springs Sherman Ordered to Memphis Sherman's Movements Down the Mississippi Van Dorn Captures Holly Springs Collecting Forage and Food Vicksburg was important to the enemy because it occupied the first high ground coming close to the river below Memphis. From there, a railroad runs east, connecting with other roads leading to all points of the southern states. A railroad also starts from the opposite side of the river, extending west as far as Shreveport, Louisiana. Vicksburg was the only channel, at the time of the events of which this chapter treats, connecting the parts of the Confederacy divided by the Mississippi. So long as it was held by the enemy, the free navigation of the river was prevented, hence its importance. Points on the river between Vicksburg and Port Hudson were held as dependencies, but their fall was sure to follow the capture of the former place. The campaign against Vicksburg commenced on the 2nd of November, as indicated in a dispatch to the General-in-Chief in the following words. I have commenced a movement on Grand Junction, with three divisions from Corinth and two from Bolivar. We'll leave here tomorrow and take command in person. If found practicable, I will go to Holly Springs and, maybe, Grenada, completing railroad and telegraph as I go. At this time, my command was holding the Mobile and Ohio Railroad from about 25 miles south of Corinth, north to Columbus, Kentucky the Mississippi Central from Bolivar North to its junction with the Mobile and Ohio, the Memphis and Charleston from Corinth East to Bear Creek, and the Mississippi River from Cairo to Memphis. My entire command was no more than was necessary to hold these lines, and hardly that if kept on the defensive. By moving against the enemy and into his unsubdued or not yet captured territory, driving their army before us, these lines would nearly have held themselves thus affording a large force for field operations. My moving force at that time was about 30,000 men, and I estimated the enemy confronting me, under Pemberton, at about the same. General McPherson commanded my left wing, and General C.S. Hamilton the center, while Sherman was at Memphis with the right wing. Pemberton was fortified at the Tallahatchie, but occupied Holly Springs and Grand Junction on the Mississippi Central Railroad. On the 8th, we occupied Grand Junction and LaGrange, throwing a considerable force seven or eight miles south along the line of the railroad. The road from Bolivar forward was repaired and put in running order as the troops advanced. Up to this time it had been regarded as an axiom in war that large bodies of troops must operate from a base of supplies which they always covered and guarded in all forward movement. There was delay before in repairing the road back and in gathering and forwarding supplies to the front. By my orders, and in accordance with the previous instructions from Washington, all the forage within reach was collected under the supervision of the chief quartermaster and the provisions under the chief commissary, receipts being given when there was someone there to take them. The supplies, in any event, to be accounted for as government stores. The stock was bountiful, but it still gave me no idea of the possibility of supplying a moving column in an enemy's country from the country itself. It was at this point, probably, where the first idea of a Freedmen's Bureau took its origin. 
Orders of the government prohibited the expulsion of the Negroes from the protection of the army when they came in voluntarily. Humanity forbade allowing them to starve. With such an army of them, of all ages and both sexes, as had congregated about Grand Junction, amounting to many thousands, it was impossible to advance. There was no special authority for feeding them unless they were employed as teamsters, cooks, and pioneers with the army, but only able-bodied young men were able to do such work. This labor would support but a very limited percentage of them. The plantations were all deserted. The cotton and corn were ripe. Men, women, and children above 10 years of age could be employed in saving these crops. To do this work with contrabands, or to have it done, organizations under a competent chief was necessary. On inquiring of such a man, Chaplain Eaton, now and for many years the very able United States Commissioner of Education, was suggested. He proved as efficient in that field as he has since done in his present one. I gave him all the assistance and guards he called for. We together fixed the prices to be paid for the Negro labor, whether rendered to the government or to the individual. The cotton was to be picked from abandoned plantations, the laborers to receive the stipulated price. My recollection is 12 and a half cents per pound for picking and ginning from the quartermaster. He shipping the cotton north to be sold for the benefit of the government. Citizens remaining on their plantations were allowed the privilege of having their crops saved by freedmen on the same terms. At once the freedmen became very self-sustaining. The money was not paid to them directly, but was expended judiciously for their benefit. They gave me no trouble afterwards. Later the freedmen were engaged in cutting wood along the Mississippi River to supply the large number of steamers on that stream. A good price was paid for chopping wood used for the supply of government steamers. Steamers chartered and which the government had to supply with fuel. Those supplying their own fuel paid a much higher price. In this way a fund was created not only sufficient to feed and clothe all, old and young, male and female, but to build them comfortable cabins, hospitals for the sick, and to supply them with many comforts that they had never known before. At this stage of the campaign against Vicksburg, I was very much disturbed by the newspaper rumors that General McClernand was to have a separate and independent command within mine to operate against Vicksburg by way of the Mississippi River. Two commanders on the same field are always one too many, and in this case, I did not think the general selected had either the experience or the qualifications to fit him for so important a position. I feared for the safety of the troops entrusted to him especially as he was to raise new levies, raw troops, to execute so important a trust. But on the 12th I received a dispatch from General Halleck saying that I had the command of all troops sent to my department and authorizing me to fight the enemy where I pleased. The next day my cavalry was in Holly Springs, and the enemy fell back south of the Tallahatchie. Holly Springs I selected for my depot of supplies and munitions of war all of which at that time came by rail from Columbus, Kentucky, except the few stores collected about LaGrange and Grand Junction. This was a long line, increasing in length as we moved south, to maintain in an enemy's country. On the 15th of November, while I was still at Holly Springs, I sent word to Sherman to meet me at Columbus. We were but 47 miles apart, 
Yet the most expeditious way for us to meet was for me to take the rail to Columbus and Sherman his steamer from the same place. At that meeting, besides talking over my general plans, I gave him his orders to join me with two divisions and to march them down the Mississippi Central Railroad if he could. Sherman, who was always prompt, was up by the 29th to Cottage Hill, 10 miles north of Oxford. He brought three divisions with him, leaving a garrison of only four regiments of infantry, a couple of pieces of artillery, and a small detachment of cavalry. Further reinforcements he knew were on their way from the north to Memphis. About this time, General Halleck ordered troops from Helena, Arkansas. Territory west of the Mississippi was not under my command then to cut the road in Pemberton's rear. The expedition was under General Hovey and C.C. Washburn and was successful so far as reaching the railroad was concerned, but the damage done was very slight and was soon repaired. The Tallahatchie, which confronted me, was very high. The railroad bridge destroyed and Pemberton strongly fortified on the south side. A crossing would have been impossible in the presence of an enemy. I sent the cavalry higher up the stream and they secured a crossing. This caused the enemy to evacuate their position, which was possibly accelerated by the expedition of Hovey and Washburn. The enemy was followed as far south as Oxford by the main body of troops, and some 17 miles farther by McPherson's command. Here the pursuit was halted to repair the railroad from the Tallahatchie northward in order to bring up supplies. The piles on which the railroad bridge rested had been left standing. The work of constructing a roadway for the troops was but a short matter, and later, rails were laid for cars. During the delay at Oxford in repairing railroads, I learned that an expedition down the Mississippi was now inevitable, and desiring to have a competent commander in charge, I ordered Sherman on the 8th of December back to Memphis to take charge. The following were his orders. Headquarters, 13th Army Corps, Department of the Tennessee, Oxford, Mississippi, December 8, 1862. Major General W.T. Sherman, Commanding Right Wing. You will proceed with as little delay as possible to Memphis, Tennessee, taking with you one division of your present command. On your arrival at Memphis, you will assume command of all troops there and that portion of General Curtis's forces at present east of the Mississippi River, and organize them into brigades and divisions into your own army. As soon as possible, move them down the river to the vicinity of Vicksburg, and with the cooperation of the gunboat fleet under the command of Flag Officer Porter, proceed to the reduction of that place in such a manner as circumstances, and your own judgment, may dictate. The amount of rations, forage, land transportation, etc. necessary to take will be left entirely with yourself. The quartermaster at St. Louis will be instructed to send you transportation for 30,000 men. Should you still find yourself deficient, your quartermaster will be authorized to make up the deficiency from such transports as may come into the port of Memphis. On arriving in Memphis, put yourself in communication with Admiral Porter and arrange with him for his cooperation. Inform me at the earliest practicable day of the time when you will embark, and such plans as may then be matured. I will hold the forces here in readiness to cooperate with you in such a manner as the movements of the enemy may make necessary.
leave the district of Memphis in the command of an efficient officer, and with a garrison of four regiments of infantry, the siege guns, and whatever cavalry may be there. U.S. Grant, Major General. This idea had presented itself to my mind earlier, for on the 3rd of December I asked Halleck if it would not be well to hold the enemy south of the Yalabusha and move a force from Helena and Memphis onto Vicksburg. On the 5th again I suggested from Oxford to Halleck that if the Helena troops were at my command, I thought it would be possible to take them and the Memphis forces south of the mouth of the Yazoo River and thus secure Vicksburg and the state of Mississippi. Halleck on the same day, the 5th of December, directed me not to attempt to hold the country south of the Tallahatchie, but to collect 25,000 troops at Memphis by the 20th for the Vicksburg expedition. I sent Sherman with two divisions at once, informed the General-in-Chief of the fact, and asked whether I should command the expedition down the river myself or send Sherman. I was authorized to do as I thought best for the accomplishment of the great object in view. I sent Sherman, and so informed General Halleck. As stated, my action in sending Sherman back was expedited by a desire to get him in command of the forces separated from my direct supervision. I feared that delay might bring McClernand, who was his senior and who had the authority from the President and Secretary of War to exercise that particular command, and independently. I doubted McClernand's fitness and I had good reason to believe that in forestalling him, I was by no means giving offense to those whose authority to command was above both him and me. Neither my orders to General Sherman, nor the correspondence between us, or General Halleck and myself, contemplated at the time my going further south in the Yalabusha. Pemberton's force in my front was in the main part of the garrison of Vicksburg, as the force with me was the defense of the territory held by us in West Tennessee and Kentucky. I hoped to hold Pemberton in my front while Sherman should get in his rear and into Vicksburg. The further north the enemy could be held, the better. It was understood, however, between General Sherman and myself that our movements were to be cooperative. If Pemberton could not be held away from Vicksburg, I was to follow him. But at that time, it was not expected to abandon the railroad north of the Yalabusha. With that point as a secondary base of supplies, the possibility of moving down the Yazoo until communications could be opened with the Mississippi was contemplated. It was my intention, and so understood by Sherman and his command, that if the enemy should fall back, I would follow him even to the gates of Vicksburg. I intended in such an event to hold the railroad to Grenada on the Yalabusha and cut loose from there, expecting to establish a new base of supplies on the Yazoo or at Vicksburg itself, with Grenada to fall back upon in case of failure. It should remember that at the time I speak of, it had not been demonstrated that an army could operate in an enemy's territory depending upon the country for supplies. A halt was called at Oxford with the advance 17 miles south of there to bring up the road to the latter point and to bring supplies of food, forage, and munitions to the front. On the 18th of December, I received orders from Washington to divide my army into four corps, with General McClernand to command one of them and to be assigned to that part of the army which was to operate down the Mississippi. This interfered with my plans 
but probably resulted in my ultimately taking the command in person. McClernand was at that time in Springfield, Illinois. The order was obeyed without any delay. Dispatches were sent to him the same day in conformity. On the 20th, General Van Dorn appeared at Holly Springs, my secondary base of supplies, captured the garrison of 1,500 men commanded by Colonel Murphy of the 8th Wisconsin Regiment, and destroyed all our munitions of war, food, and forage. The capture was a disgraceful one to the officer commanding, but not to the troops under him. At the same time, Forrest got on our line of railroad between Jackson, Tennessee, and Columbus, Kentucky, doing much damage to it. This cut me off from all communications with the North for more than a week, and it was more than two weeks before rations or forage could be issued from the stores obtained in a regular way. This demonstrated the impossibility of maintaining so long a line of road over which to draw supplies for an army moving into enemy country. I determined, therefore, to abandon my campaign into the interior with Columbus as a base and return to LaGrange and Grand Junction destroying the road to my front and repairing the road to Memphis, making the Mississippi River the line over which to draw supply. Pemberton was falling back at the same time. The moment I received the news of Van Dorn's success, I sent the cavalry at the front back to drive him from the country. He had start enough to move north, destroying the railroad in many places, and to attack several small garrisons entrenched as guards to the railroad. All of these he found warned of his coming and prepared to receive him. Van Dorn did not exceed in capturing a single garrison except the one at Holly Springs, which was larger than all the others attacked by him put together. Murphy was also warned of Van Dorn's approach, but made no preparations to meet him. He did not even notify his command. Colonel Murphy was the officer who, two months before, had evacuated Iuka on the approach of the enemy. General Rosecrans denounced him for the act and desired to have him tried and punished. I sustained the colonel at the time because his command was a small one compared with that of the enemy, not one-tenth as large and I thought he had done well to get away without falling into their hands. His leaving large stores to fall into Price's possessions I looked upon as an oversight and excused it on the ground of inexperience in military matters. He should, however, have destroyed them. This last surrender demonstrated to my mind that Rosecrans's judgment of Murphy's conduct at Ikawa was correct. The surrender of Holly Springs was most reprehensible and showed either the disloyalty of Colonel Murphy to the cause which he professed to serve, or just gross cowardice. After the war was over, I read from the diary of a lady who accompanied General Pemberton in his retreat from the Tallahatchie, that the retreat was almost a panic. The roads were bad and it was difficult to move the artillery and trains. Why there should have been a panic I do not see. No expedition had yet started down the Mississippi River. Had I known the demoralized condition of the enemy, or the fact that the central Mississippi abounded so in all army supplies, I would have been in pursuit of Pemberton while his cavalry was destroying the roads in my rear. After sending cavalry to drive Van Dorn away, my next order was to dispatch all the wagons we had, under proper escort to collect and bring in all supplies of forage and food from a region of 15 miles east and west of the road from our front back to Grand Junction, leaving two months supplies for the families of those whose stores were taken. I was amazed at the quantity of supplies the country afforded. 
It showed me that we could have subsisted off the country for two months instead of two weeks without going beyond the limits designated. This taught me a lesson which was taken advantage of later in the campaign when our army lived 20 days with the issue of only five-day rations by the commissary. Our loss of supplies was great at Holly Springs, but it was more than compensated for those taken from the country and by the lessons taught. The news of the capture of Holly Springs and the destruction of our supplies caused much rejoicing among the people remaining in Oxford. They came with broad smiles on their faces, indicating intense joy, to ask what I was going to do now without anything for my soldiers to eat. I told them that I was not disturbed, that I had already sent troops and wagons to collect all the food and forage they could find for 15 miles on each side of the road. Countenances soon changed, and so did the inquiry. The next was, what are we to do? My response was that we had endeavored to feed ourselves from our own northern resources while visiting them, but their friends in gray had been uncivil enough to destroy what we had brought along, and it could not be expected that men, with arms in their hands, would starve in the midst of plenty. I advised them to emigrate east or west, 15 miles, and assist in eating up whatever we left. End of chapter 30 Next time, chapter 31 Headquarters moved to Holly Springs General McClernand in command Assuming command at Young's Point Operations above Vicksburg Fortifications about Vicksburg The Canal Lake Providence Operations at Yazoo Pass <laughs>